The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Best in Blow edition. It's Wednesday, August 7th, 2019. On today's show, The Farewell stars Aquafina as a young Chinese-American immigrant who returns to China to say goodbye to her grandmother, who has not been told that she is dying. And then Netflix gives us Blown Away, a completely standard-issue competition TV show with a completely unstandard activity as its MacGuffin, glass blowing. And finally, a Broadway titan has died. We discuss the legacy of Hal Prince with our own program's dear friend, Isaac Butler. Who do, who's who's joining me here first? I can't believe I have like an unimpeded visual of both of your faces <laughs> in the flesh right here. All of your eye rolls, Julia. I don't have to imagine them. So <laughs> and me I'll and st- Julia have to stop exchanging our secret looks of dismay when you say something dismaying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't do a very good job of keeping those secret, just FYI. Uh, I don't think we've been all in the same studio taping. I mean, with the exception of live shows, I don't know when we've all been taping in the same room last. It's the best. It's so nice. Yay. Thank I'm, you for coming down, Steve. I know. I'm so incredibly, I'm so totally pleased to be doing the show. Who's going to be best in blow? Julia Turner. Uh, uh, we shall see. We must ready our punties and proceed. Uh, I will introduce you now as Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hello. All right, shall we dig in? Lulu Wang's indie feature, The Farewell, began as a segment on This American Life. As a film, it became a sensation at Sundance. It stars Aquafina as Billy, a fairly typical American millennial, a creative making her hard and solitary way in New York City. She's also an immigrant from China and speaks regularly on the phone with her beloved Nai Nai, her grandmother whose spirit has followed her to America. Billy is devastated to find out Nai Nai is dying of cancer and outraged by what is apparently a not totally atypical Chinese way of dealing with this fact. Everyone, Nai Nai's doctor, her friends, her extended family, is lying to her, telling her her health is fine in order to make the last weeks of her life as free from fear as possible. Uh, Billy, as I said, is played by the rapper-turned-actress Aquafina. She's terrific in this. She gets on a plane to China to reunite one last time with Nai Nai and uh, is in search of a right way to say goodbye. Okay, we don't have a proper clip for this, uh, but we do have the film's trailer. Let's, Let's play a piece of that. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. Your nan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Do you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, nan will find out right away. Kadena, as per usual, let's start with you. What do you, you make of the movie? Well, it's a huge crowd pleaser. I really enjoyed it. I think it's going to be a big hit. Um, I think something to remark on, having just heard that bit of the trailer, is that that trailer is atypical in an interesting way. Not that much of the movie is in English. And uh, I think that's that, that was one of the first things that struck me, is that a movie being released for a broad audience like this, you know, to be a big summer crowd pleaser that you bring the whole family to, has so many subtitles in it. Um, I think in a way that's what makes 
me feel justified that the three of us as three non-Asians are discussing this movie. A lot of times when we talk about a movie or some cultural object that is very distant from our own culture, we'll bring in someone with more of a connection to that culture to talk about talk about it. But given that this is, you know, a piece of art by a Chinese American about a Chinese American set almost entirely in China and spoken almost entirely in Chinese yet being released for a wider audience seems to me like this really great sign for what's happening in film and in sort of globalization in film is that, you know, it is supposed to be also for people like us who don't come from that culture. And yet it doesn't try to uh, Americanize or sort of um, globalize that presentation at all. And I really appreciated that about the movie. Um, Overall, what would I say about it? I mean, I was maybe slightly underwhelmed just because it's been so rapturously received Mm -hmm. by critics and audiences. It's a lovely afternoon's entertainment and a beautiful family story. There are some things that I might have liked to know a little bit more about. (laughs) I think at times the movie's understatedness almost works against it. And I'd like to know a little bit more about what the Aquafina character's life is like back home, what kind of a writer she is. You know, she's is presented that she's a creative type, as you say, and that she's applied for a Guggenheim fellowship. But we don't know exactly what she does for a living or, you know, what her life was like back in New York. And I think that might have given a little more richness to the story. But I mean, overall, I would say take the whole family. It's a it's a really lovely and extremely funny. It sounds like it would be all tragic from that trailer, but a very funny movie as well. Mm-hmm. Surely the hook for broader audiences at the heart of the movie is the performance of Aquafina, who's just emerging as a, a film star. I mean, she's just, she has a very distinctive and captivating screen presence. What do you make of the movie and her performance? Yeah, I think her performance in the film is incredible. I think that the array of acting in the film is really wonderful. And and one of the things I loved about the story, which I went to see with my sister, um, both of whom we both had very close relationships with our grandmother and she was the kind of person that you would call while you were living your single life in New York City. I remember I would call her while my stuff was in the dryer at the laundromat when I had bed bugs. That was like one of the good things about getting bed bugs is my life was just like an endless slog of laundry, but I would just go out to Fort Green Park and talk to my grandmother in 25 minute increments while I waited to switch things over. Um, so there's ways in which the story is universal. It's about cross-generational relationships, about um, grieving and mourning and death and the passage of time. Um, but I also thought this movie was really unstinting in its in the specificity of its picture of the uh, kind of anxieties and unease of immigration and how making such a stark choice about what to do with your life and where to go for opportunity and what that means in terms of your judgments and perceived judgments of the country that you're leaving and what the real uh, ambiguities and ambivalences around that are was incredibly acute and powerful. The, the One of my favorite scenes in the film is this sort of taut debate that's had at a banquet table a night or two before the wedding. We should say they, they go back for the wedding of Billy's cousin, which is the ostensible reason for everybody to gather uh, it's why Nina thinks they're all gathering when, in fact, they're all gathering to say goodbye without saying goodbye. Um, but there's a very taut, not quite rehearsal dinner scene where the one of Nene's sons moved to Japan, one went to America, Billy's dad, and then there's a niece who stayed in China and has remained closer to her, her niece and sister. Um, and the sort of debates about where to live and where you're from and what that means and where the opportunity lies and what the freedoms are in modern China versus what the freedoms are in modern America 
just felt really exciting to see on screen, like not presented as obviously it's one way or obviously it's another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I don't disagree with Dana, uh, with Dana um, when you say that there's um, an understatedness that's both the strength of the movie and its possible weakness. I mean, this is a movie about not saying something to someone, right? It's it's about how the the given reason for not telling this person that she's dying is the last weeks or months of her life will be improved by not knowing. Um, there's a second reason, apparently, which is there's there's a belief that uh, the prognosis improves if the person is not filled with dread of dying. Um, but there's another reason that comes up repeatedly in the movie, which is that there's a discomfort with a sort of Western expressive individualistic worldview that says that everyone needs to say what's precisely on their mind in a quote-unquote sincere way and then have a kind of public display of emotion surrounding it. And there's a sense in which not saying is regarded in one culture as evidence of suppression or, or, or repression, and in another culture is thought of as a sign of strength and respect for the holistic entity of either the family or society. And the movie's... So on, in one sense, I guess what I'm saying is the movie's super conscious of that. I mean, the movie actually explicitly discusses it and puts some of that very elegantly in the mouth uh, mouths of some characters. At the same time, it allows the movie to be slightly underwritten in ways that at moments feel like absolute confidence on the part of this young filmmaker and at other moments make it seem a little bit slight. But at the end of the day, I think it had to be a slight movie in some sense. I mean, I, I don't want to give anything away, but the last shot of the film is just I think that was a beautiful way of telling what the end of that particular story is. The ending is extraordinary. Is. We can't give away anything about it, but the ending is really beautiful. Really confidently cinematic and and very confident in what you can get away with not saying explicitly. Um, and then the second thing about the film I'd just kind of like to confess is that, you know, as we record this segment, you know, the United States stock market is just plunging because of this trade war with China. Like China plays a huge role as an imaginative construct in the inner lives and outer lives of Americans. Like we, um, you know, this is a billion of the people on the planet Earth and their story relative to the entire globe is going to become the central story of the 21st century, displacing the central story that Americans played in the 20th century. So they're objects of enormous amount of fascination and anxiety on our part. But for how large that looms, it's remarkably unspecific. And to me, what I loved almost as much as anything about the film was simply being inside that apartment in an ordinary Chinese family's uh, home uh, in China. And I really believed the specificity and the care of that. I mean, you feel as though you're a fly on the wall within the confines of this family. Um, and um, I, I, I can't say anything other than I loved being there. I felt like this family was completely real. That apartment was entirely real. And um, all of a sudden, this large, looming, abstract kind of projection on the part of Anglo-America became something quite real. Yeah, something that I scribbled in my notes during the screening was crazy middle-class Asians. <laughs> it's really the opposite of the universe of crazy rich Asians, right? Which is all about kind of glamour and glitz and envy and beautiful landscapes. And you can't wait to go to Singapore and see that city. And the city that the film takes place in, which I think is called Changchun, is just a very ordinary town. Um, and there's almost a sense that, well, there's some talk, too, about how quickly China has changed and how the town is no longer recognizable from when Billy, the Aquafina character, left it as a six-year-old. And 
there's really a sense that you're seeing just real, ordinary, everyday life in China, what a normal middle-class apartment looks like, what people wear, what kind of restaurants they go to. And so as a, a piece of tourism, right, it's the it's the opposite of that of that crazy rich Asians envy world. And, and Julia, the, the, the movie makes plain the degree to which ordinary, quote-unquote, middle-class Chinese people are in the midst of a massive dynamic change, right? I mean, they were the creation of a massive state-sponsored dynamic change, right? A huge migration from the country to the city, massive, rapid uh, industrialization. But now they're in the, in, a, in, the, in the movie makes it plain, they're in the midst of a new set of dynamic changes within the context of being urban and middle class. In fact, there's a sense that a transactional and a money culture within that is kind of corrupt. They're staying at a hotel. There are glimpses of rich businessmen showing up with what look like women for hire that are Clearly, those image no yeah oh sorry I'm not you just, used to you your just knitting heard, your brows. My like listening that. face is just deeply skeptical. <laughs> Steve is talking place skeptical face it's on a, face. It's the face I make to everybody all the time. Um, uh, I haven't gotten Botox yet. <laughs> but that image, those gl- they're they're just glimpses. It's part of the subtlety of the film that they are very quick glimpses, but they're lingered on just long enough to let you know that this is both extraordinarily important to the Aquafina character, to Billy, and to the filmmaker, right? Women are for hire in a new way because of a money culture has come to China. Yeah, and that's part of what I love about that ambivalent dinner scene is just the sense that that China has been radically, radically transformed within a single generation. The China that, that Billy's parents left was bears almost no resemblance to the China of today, but that the China of today between the trade war... And I mean, and Xi Jinping's name is not mentioned, but um, this the sense of of kind of curdled promise and uneasy compromise with the modern economy of China permeates the film too. I really loved it. I mean, it, it I, I I do I think it is such a quiet film that the hype that it suffers because of the hype a little bit, like. It's just fundamentally a quiet family film, but it's really well done and well made and beautiful and interesting. And um, but but still, it's not like Constance Wu does not show up in a Valentino the size of this room. And so, just be warned, I guess. <laughs> um, but I, I I think it's really worth seeing. I also just feel like I haven't said her name because I'm afraid I'm going to pronounce it wrong. But the woman who plays Nai Nai, who's really the main uh, character, Nai the grandmother is the main character besides Aquafina, sure. wouldn't you say? And Shuzhen Zhao, although it's her first film credit, has apparently been a professional actress in China since the age of 16. She's done TV. She's done theater. She's really spectacular. But uh, she has that that realness. I mean, she. I, I think you don't have to be of Chinese descent to to feel a very grandmotherly connection with that character well, and to think me, about your grandparents. She reminded me exactly of my uh, German grandmother from the Bronx, like exactly the same combination of like squishy softness, poofy bouffant, and like totally bossy domineeringness, <laughs> like in in equal measure. Yeah, so totally fussing over her granddaughter, yet at the same time, it's really clear that she is the boss of the family and she's calling all the shots. And so beloved beloved, and so endearing and kind of call people out in these just kind of scaldingly blunt ways and still be beloved and cute. Anyway, it's a terrific, gentle movie. Go in with an unhyped mind and you'll exit loving it, I think, as we did. It's called uh, The Farewell. All right, before we go any further, of course, we've probably got some business to attend to. Julia, what do you have? 
Oh, we have sad business today. It is the last call on our search for a new production assistant. Sad for us because we are saying farewell to the wonderful Alex Barish, but also probably happy for us because no doubt one of you listening is wonderful and will apply and get this job and lead us into a glorious future. So you should apply to be the production assistant for the Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. This is a part-time position based in our Brooklyn office, and you can send a cover letter and resume to talent at slate.com with the subject line, production assistant. Alex, describe the job. Make your pitch. <laughs> Why should people apply? What would they be doing if they if they nabbed the perch? I would say that if you love the Gabfest, you will love this position. You get to pitch topics and guests every week, compile the research for those segments, so you sort of get to shape the course of the show a little bit, and you hear the behind-the-scenes Gabfest content that doesn't make the final cut, <laughs> such as Julia's Sense Memories of Sondheim from seventh grade. So if you want to, you know, get to know, get to know the hosts and get to shape the show, I would say it's a pretty good opportunity to do that. And I am very sad to say goodbye. Oh! <laughs> We're going to miss you so much, yeah. Alex. Um, to the extent that there is a production assistant Hall of Fame, I think uh, Alex is a first ballot <laughs> inductee. Yeah, Thank for you. sure. For sure. Well, we look forward to following your career and to all the bright places it takes you. And we look forward to meeting our next production assistant. Again, it's talent at slate.com with the subject line production assistant, cover letter, and resume. In Slate Plus today, finally, we will grill at Metlandia about his no longer on Twitter existence. It is true. Steve Metcalf is off Twitter when he tells you you can tweet at us. He just means you can tweet at me and Dana. Um, we will discuss with him his departure from that platform and our current relationships with social media. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and a great way to support our journalism. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, let's go. Netflix and the various gods of content seem intent on answering the question, across how many domains of human experience can you apply the exact same competition show format? in which a motley group of aspirants against the ticking clock compete to win the approval of a revered but stern eminence in their chosen field. With Netflix's Blown Away, you get to be doubly amazed, amazed at how standard the format has become and amazed at how remarkable the underlying activity in this show is, a.k.a. glassblowing. Throw sand, lime, soda into a 2,000-degree furnace to create a globulicious molten liquid to which you apply blowpipes, punters, and yes, glory holes, a dance of heating and cooling, twisting and turning that results in either a lightsome miracle or utter disaster. Let's listen to a clip. 30 minutes left. Yeah. Winning would mean infinite open doors that I have yet to see. All right, I'm ready. Got it. Oh, the foot and the spear break off. I went in to flash it one more time, but we had spent too much time outside the glory hole and it immediately cracked down the side of it. Piece was worthless, so I just knocked it off into the ground. Done. When you're at that point, sometimes you're not thinking straight. And I just you know, wasn't really thinking straight. 
pile of broken glass is just a pile of broken glass, man. A lot of people that will watch will be like, it looks beautiful. As long as it is still on a pipe or a punty, it is not done. It could break at any time. 15 minutes left! Well, a, lot of, a lot of terminology we need working through there. But Julia, let me start with just whether you like this show. I uh, sort of. Um, <laughs> I liked some things about it. I mean, in general, I like the competition reality show better than the people hang out and try to like screw or marry or hate each other or win at being on an island type shows. So I want I love a show where you're like learning the particulars of a skill, you're learning a whole glossary's worth of new terminology, you're understanding like what the aesthetic criteria are. I love learning, for example, that looks like it could be found in an airport gift shop is like the <laughs> ultimate glass-blowing burn. Like, oh, you just made some tacky orca with like tacked-on fins. Like, uh, I, I liked that. Um, I... I think I was forced to reckon with something that one of the contestants said in the first episode, which is that, like, at its worst, glass is kind of, like, blobby. and t- Like, you have to fight against the property of glass, which is to be sort of, like, blobby and goofy. So to make something elegant and get out of that, like, goopy blobbiness is, like, an aesthetic challenge. And it helped me recognize in myself, like, why I've always sort of not responded super in- with super high points of aesthetic love to, like... Chaluli's work or like I don't know like I'm not sure glass art is my highest form of art um I think a critique I have the show of the show in its first four episodes but that that perhaps abates as it dwindles in number of contestants and I think I may keep watching it to figure it out is that I don't feel like I fully understand how they do the really cool stuff like so much of it happens like in the glory hole which is basically just like one kind of furnace but there seem to be like multiple ones um, from what I can tell Uh, like in a couple of the first challenges you see everything from the glass blob orca to like an extraordinary kind of like goblet with like fluted twisted patterns that I would be delighted to have my morning iced coffee in but it's like how do you do that like how do you get those grooves in it and make them swirl and make it not break like some of the glass artists seem to be operating at just a like leaps and bounds higher technical level than some of the other glass artists and I found myself through the first few episodes there's just like a lot of hokum about the personalities and the ambition and like the ethos of the challenge. And it's like, no, if we're if I'm really like here watching spending hours of my life watching a glass blowing show, like let's get in it. Like I guess it's probably technically difficult to find a forge camera that can withstand the heat and actually show you what's going on inside. And you probably can't make a glass window on the edge of a forge that is supposed to melt glass. But I felt like I wasn't learning as much about glass blowing as I would have liked from the glass blowing show. I think that's my honest critique. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I totally agree with Julia that the most interesting reality shows are the ones about craft, right? And Project Runway, which is now being, as you said, aped everywhere, felt really fresh when it first premiered because of its emphasis on craft. Um, But compared to even just, say, the great British baking show, I feel like you can watch a couple episodes of that and feel like, oh, I learned about what a trifle is, (laughs) you know, and how a trifle is constructed. And now perhaps I could try to cook a trifle. I mean, obviously, you're not supposed to come out of the show knowing how to blow glass, but I would at least like to be able to hold down a good bar conversation (laughs) about glass blowing after watching a couple hours of a glass blowing show. And 
I would almost say, and you know, I'm the one who's always saying that every show is too long on TV, but these episodes are so short. They're just yeah. over 20 minutes, and it feels like they're really, really rushed to get through this timed challenge and the judging and all of the, the framework of the show, and that there's very, very little time spent on you know, watching a, a piece evolve or, you know, seeing particularly what mistakes were made, not just that a mistake was made and therefore it didn't win the challenge, but, you know, what happened in the process that made that happen. I don't quite also know why a big audience has popped up around this show that's obsessed with precisely that, with the craft. And, you know, the show has a big following because of the unusual art that it focuses on. Uh, and yet it seems strangely uninterested in that art. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, that's why we're discussing it, right? Is the, as far as I understand that, that it's just, blow, quote unquote, you know, it's blown up uh, among a segment of the audience. I mean, I really like the show. There is a contrast that sometimes really works with it and sometimes maybe against it between the the, the kind of the standard camera work that attends the format, which presumes nothing by way of a, a, an attention span on the part of the viewer. I mean, the, the, the format seems designed to work with people who are extremely or appeal to people who are extremely easily bored in contrast to this activity glass blowing which is ancient it has a meditative almost i think spiritual element to it i mean it's sort of two parts meticulous precision to one part woo woo but some but for, I, I mean, you almost have to that face it's, it's just so, my listening total face skepticism. it's just what i look like when i'm listening to people oh my god i mean i just wanted i looked over to see if woo woo passed muster no, that was so right. and it, it just didn't keep um, going they think that there's the, the one contestant quotes yoda they think that there's some element of kind of spiritual woo-woo that goes with the sheer weird physics of trying to get glass to conform to your creative will to power. And um, uh, one couple of things I would add that made me like the show is I do, I'd be curious to hear you speak to this. It feels as though there's kind of a self-selection process. Not, it, it is a very hard thing to get any good at. And it seems to, uh, and once you're good at it, it's not entirely clear what its application is. I mean, you can make beautiful sort of rarefied, fragile objects um, but that doesn't it's not a generalizable, you know, I don't know, skill. And and but it seems to appeal to a certain kind of, I think, kind of generous and likable spirit. I thought that this that there was a way in which I'm just <laughs> looking at you. There's a way in which this group was 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 considerably more likable than your average reality TV group. Yeah, and they don't really groom a villain, which is nice. There is yes. one woman who apparently has somewhat of a following because of her strong personality who is a little bit. I don't know, I guess you'd say bossy or a little harsh or something, but there is nobody who's being groomed to be the re the big reality style scheming villain who's trying to break other people's pieces or something like that. There's a real sweetness to the guy who you heard that piece of glass break in the in this clip we listened to. And uh, he's the guy, this is a slight spoiler, but it happens on the first show, but he gets kicked off because his piece just shatters on the floor and it seems completely unfair. Anyway, I mean, yeah. I guess part of it is that your, your glass doesn't break, but there's something so sad about the moment that that first group in the first show is displaying their results. And he his is just a pile of shards. That would be me. I identify with the shards guy. <laughs> I'm a shard guy too. But Julia, what I love about the show also is that the bar gets set at the end of a competition when one person wins it with something especially intricate or beautiful. And this is a re the, it reshapes the risk reward calculus for the next show, yeah. right? You've got to do, you suddenly realize who you're competing against. You've got to take bigger risks. And of course, the the um you know the downside of that is one false move and shattered glass yeah i mean i i 
I will keep watching because, as you guys say, the personalities are really lovely. Like the people who've devoted enough. I mean, one thing you wonder about with this show is like, how many seasons can they do? Like, how many accomplished glassblowers who are there? I mean, I'm sure plenty, but who want to give up their lives to be on a reality show to pursue glassblow? Like, it just feels like such a niche world in an exciting way. And they're also pretty supportive of each other's endeavors. I mean, there's a little, you know, tension over who's closing the door of the annealer to the right amount or whatever. But, you know, they they seem pretty like stoked on each other for pulling things off in a way that feels kind of sweet and uh, cuts against the conventions. I mean, I, I think I basically would say that the direction of the show and the editing of the show is much more conventional and less interesting than the potential of the show. And my hope is that when they get down to three or four characters, you they find ways to actually slow down a little bit and really tell us, like, okay, how did what step by step, like, how do you actually even do that? But no, I, you know, my children, as we've discussed in this show, are like afraid of movies and afraid of watching things. And I was like, you know what? I bet my children could watch this glass blowing reality show with me. Like, it would be fun to have a communal watch. So, I like sat them down like it was weird before dinner and we were just like sitting around for 10 minutes before it was all ready. And, um, you know, the first 10 minutes I was like, oh, I've introduced my children not to the wonders of glass blowing and the fact that glass is made out of sand, which they found marvelous when I told it to them before we started, which is the conventions of of reality show storytelling where like a process was painstakingly explained with puns and then 10 people's <laughs> characters were very briefly sketched and they were of course transfixed but I was like oh this wasn't quite the like wholesome family crafting experience I thought it was gonna we be. haven't even mentioned the host who is the most generic Ken doll host you could possibly imagine he has no connection to glass blowing he's just sort of like a TV handsome guy who says hypey sounding things at the beginning of the show they should get rid of him entirely and the host should just be that very calm and oh, sort yeah. of Gathered the, the Athena glass of artist. glass, Who's the, the, judge? the like tall, serene. Yes. She seems like she doesn't quite have feet. She just like glides around. <laughs> she's she's iconic. I like her. Um, agreed. All right. Well, it's sort of fun. It's called Blown Away. It's on Netflix. I'm sure some of you have opinions about it. So email us or you know find us on Twitter and discuss them. All right. Moving on. Hal Prince is, I think, safe to say, is uh, the, one of the true gods of Broadway has died. The man who produced and or directed the original Broadway productions of West Side Story, Cabaret, Fiddler on the Roof, Sweeney Todd, Evita, the list goes on and on and on. To discuss his legacy, we are joined by SFOP, supreme friend of the program, Isaac Butler. Uh, Isaac, welcome back. Hey, it's so great to be here. I want to plug two things about you, if you don't mind. The first is that you co-authored with Dan Coyce the definitive oral history of the play Angels in America. It's called The World Only Spins Forward. And you have a forthcoming book or in process? In process. In the pipeline is The Method, A History of Method Acting, which I can't wait to read and talk about on this show. But anyway, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you all so much for having me. Do you get in... To character to write a book about method acting by like <laughs> pretending to write a book and then that's how you've written the book. Yeah, you know, there's this. That's actually, how you write all books. That, yeah, yeah. I think all all writing is an uh, you have to method act your way into being a good writer. But there actually is an anecdote where two of the actors from the Moscow Theater are on tour and they're playing billiards and they're both terrible at billiards and then all of a sudden one of them starts like sinking trick shots and just clearing the table and being amazing. And this guy, uh, uh, Vaktangov and Michael Chekhov, the other actor asked him, he's like, how did you do that? He's like, 
I just imagined that I was a good pool player and that I was playing <laughs> the character of a good pool player and I became one, which I just, I wish I could do that with, with writing. I wish I could just sit down and be like, today I am playing the part of someone who knows. Who has finished this book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh God. All right. Well, that was spirit crushing. Let's, um, <laughs> let's move into how Prince, you know, so much more about this man than uh, I ever will. So let me let you pick where to begin. I mean, it's a titanic legacy. It, it's a titanic legacy that um, breaks out pretty neatly by decade between the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. But I think, you know, to start at the at the like why uh, uh, he's most important really is that he directed and produced and co-conceived Cabaret, which is pretty much like one of the most important musicals of the 20th century. It is the first kind of high concept musical, and it's especially one of the first high concept musicals to be a huge hit. Um, Hal Prince uh, served in the army and he uh, went to this kind of seedy nightclub in Germany uh, uh, under a, um, a bombed out church, if I recall, and the and saw this kind of MC there. And so when they were working on Cabaret, you know, he had this kind of idea that you would have the A plot, which is a adapted from Christopher Isherwood's Berlin stories, but then commenting on it would be this kind of limbo netherworld of the cabaret club that the MC, originally played by Joel Grey, presides over, and that the songs there would not exactly be um, moving the plot forward. They wouldn't necessarily be rooted in character. What they would be doing is commenting on the action and on the themes, and then through that you would see the rise of the Nazis as they took over Germany. Um, and it was a, it was just an extraordinarily huge hit. It ran for four years and it was, of course, turned into one of the great uh, of the 20th century American movies by Bob Fosse, who had choreographed the stage production. And after that, he and uh, his longtime collaborator who, whose musicals he had produced, Stephen Sondheim, did this run of musicals, each one of which pushed the form forward in some important way, which were uh, Company Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, you know, one of the the greatest shows of all time, and uh, Merrily We Roll Along. So that's kind of the top line, like why he's important. But even before that, he was a wonderkind producer. His first show out of the gate as a producer was The Pajama Game in the 50s, which ran for a thousand performances. You know, it's not everyone who their first show runs a thousand performances. He produced West Side Story. You know, so there's 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 other stuff in that biography as well. But the most important stuff is Cabaret and that, that list of musicals that he did with Sondheim. Let me now date myself by saying that in 1979, I became, I saw the Len Cariou, uh, Angela Lansbury, Sweeney Todd, and became so obsessed with it, got the cast album, and I went back and saw it twice. Uh, it meant the world to me, and it just, that's, I will always associate the name Hal Prince with the, um, quite intense, elaborate staging of that musical. Right. I mean, Sweeney Todd's a really great example of that because we have this sort of not great movie of it that that Tim Burton did that, you know, like t Hal Prince understood that that show was about the class system of England. And as a result, it opens with this kind of terrifying tableau, multi-layered tableau of that class system, which then becomes parodied in the poor eating the rich, literally, instead of the rich eating the poor figuratively throughout the show. And, you know, that kind of hyper-focus on the show's themes delivered with um, a high amount of panache and showmanship is the trademark of Hal Prince as a director, I think. 
Yeah, something that seemed to pop up again and again in the many obituaries to to Hal Prince that were around last week is that he was very concerned with politics and with the class system and that he he brought the real world on, onto the stage in a way that hadn't been been done before and kept the, kept musical theater from being its own sealed off bubble of entertainment. Uh, he certainly did that until the 80s, I would say, because in the 80s is the moment where he directs and produces his most successful show of all time. After a string of, we should say, Merrily We Roll Along, which is the last last major collaboration between Sondheim and Prince, Hal Prince, closes after two weeks. And um, Sondheim's response to that is to essentially say, F y'all, I'm going off Broadway. And he makes Sunday in the Park with George and Into the Woods and Assassins and stuff like that. Um, And Hal Prince keeps pursuing Broadway. And he has a series of really like the longest show that he has in that period on Broadway runs two months, I think. And then he directs and produces Phantom of the Opera, which is the longest running show in Broadway history and is still running today and is not a show I think um, uh, fits in with those principles. I, it, to me, it's like kind of a, a really crass spectacle um, uh, that's just sort of designed to print money. But if you read him talking about it, he still took that show very seriously. And he had a lot of um, interesting ideas about the artistry of that show. And I think that's why of those kind of British invasion musicals, that's the one that's lasted the longest is because, you know, how, how Prince, he wasn't approaching it as this, you know, crass thing or whatever. He was approaching it as a serious work of art about love. And he cared for it very deeply. And I think that shows in that piece, you know, in in how that show turned out. That's so interesting to me is that's the one of those 80s musicals that seems to have the least going on in terms of themes. If you think about like, well, it's really about the class system of Britain or it's really about the rise of Nazi <laughs> yeah, Germany. Yeah. It's like, what is the Phantom <laughs> of the Opera about it? Like at least lame it, like lame it. You know, right. you know, some of those other ones had themes as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, what what attracted (laughs) Hal Prince to it, according to him, was that it was about love and that it was romantic. And he actually felt that if you went back through the history of the American musical, most of them are not, in fact, romantic. He was like, the king and I, the highest level of romance in the king and I is that they waltz. In She Loves Me, which is a brilliant musical that Hal Prince directed the original production of, um, it and which is the shop around the corner, you've got mail, it's all the same story. It just ends with the two of them realizing who each other is. But you don't see this kind of like you know, gothic, swooning. you know, intense swooning love. And he wanted to explore that, which I think is it's fascinating. It's fascinating to me that that's what the appeal of it was uh, to him. I should also say, because I trash Phantom all the time in real life, and I guess I just did on this show, it was the gateway drug for me for musical theater. I mean, I saw it on tour in like fourth grade and I was like, what is this? There's a chandelier and it <laughs> falls. And there's like, a you know, because there's all these horror elements in it. And just like, I was totally bewitched by it. I probably listened to it every day for a year, you know, so like uh, 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 it, it still has its value, I guess is what I'm saying. Even if in retrospect, I'm like, that's that's not a good. All right. Your disclosure is stipulated. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing that you dismiss that one dismisses more than juvenilia. Right. The yeah. thing that you that first brought you into something that then immediately suddenly seems so so worthy of shame. Yeah. Exactly. Another thing that struck me reading all about his life, his very long life and long career. He died at 91. And as you say, had been working in musical theater since the 50s is how many failures he had. Is that typical? of a great Broadway producer to have almost more failures than successes? Uh, Well, 80% of Broadway shows flop. You know, so it's sort of typical of everyone that they're that one side of the ledger, that the flop side of the ledger is going to be a bit higher than the hit side of the ledger. But, you know, with um, with Hal Prince, the thing is, is that, you know, he had so many remarkable hits right out of the gate. He and his uh, early producing partner, Robert Griffith, who died fairly early on in, in Prince's career as a producer, I mean, they they were they had the Midas touch. 
they were doing so well. Hal Prince says in this little short documentary that's in the New York Times that the New York Times posted after he died, they were doing so well that like when he wanted to do West Side Story, he just called people and said, um, I'm taking investors for West Side Story. Here's the minimum investment. You have 24 hours. And within 24 hours, the show was funded. You know, like so uh, that takes real clout. It takes real clout in the to do Pacific Overtures, which I don't know if you you all know Pacific Overtures, but it's a show about Commodore Perry's, you know, uh, opening that's in heavy quotes of Japan for trade (laughs) from the Japanese perspective. Um, starring a, uh, a a cast of largely unknown Asian American actors, um, often using weird point of view tricks, so you don't always know exactly what's going on. Wh- that is not a heroic narrative of America at all. And you know he was able to get that done on Broadway. Um, you know it, it would be very hard for most people to get that done on Broadway today. So, uh, but starting with Merrily We Roll Along, those fl- flops did start to add up. You know, like he had a he had a whole string of them, but it, but it is very typical that there will be um, some some losses on the uh, on the old ledger when well, you add them all. Up uh, so you. I've been given an opening here to say your piece uh, about flops about that specific flop whose name I'm now forgetting. Glory days, glory the glory. I thought it might be glory days. It's just a wonderful piece of writing. Oh, and that's, thank you. It really is extraordinary, and that that story is a great one, and it just reminds you that it's this Darwinian struggle and we live amidst the survivors and we forget the pitiless winnowing away of the the millions that it takes to get these titles that we all, you know, all can um, recall off the top of our head. Let me ask you another question. Uh, One of the things that's always intrigued me about your forthcoming book is, you know, theater acting is is among the most demanding but also evanescent art forms. You give a performance on a stage and it, you know, in theory can be filmed, but to the degree the essence of it is that moment in front of that audience um, and to the degree that it rests on being in that moment somehow totally, it doesn't really lend itself to posterity. Is that also true of theater directing in some sense that a film director obviously gives to posterity this infinitely repeatable cultural artifact, but theater directing is, it's, you know, the set comes down, the lights go off. And so what will, in, 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 Relation to his legacy, you know, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 difficult. Uh, his legacy is complicated because he was a very hands-on producer and director. So there's ways in which his ideas, not credited to him, live on in the albums of many of those shows. You know, he was the one. He was one of the ones in Damn Yankees to be like the closing number of Act One doesn't work. We need a new number, and out of that came Who's Got the Pain. There's a whole episode of you know uh, Fosse Verdon about that with um. Evan Handler is Hal Prince. You know he's Hal Prince because he has the glasses resting on the top of his head and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and he's the one who conceived of the 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 Kit Kat Club and Cabaret. You know, he's not credited as a co-writer on that show. But, you know, so there, that's one way that his contribution lives on. And also you can go see Phantom of the Opera right now if you want to. It is still <laughs> playing on Broadway. It will probably tour until, like, the touring production will go on so long that it will star a cast of cockroaches. You know, like, I mean, it, it will never die. That and show, that's still his conception that you would see if you went on Broadway now, if you roughly went on Broadway set right design, now, all that. Absolutely, you would still see his staging, um, uh, for sure. It's still his set design. Actually, I think some of the things that maybe look a little might look a little passe about it. You know, you have to remember we're very forward thinking uh, 
uh, in the 80s. But yes, when a show closes, the directorial record of it really um, vanishes. I mean, it still exists as stage directions in a, in a prompt book somewhere. There's a video of it that you can go look up at the uh, Lincoln Center li- at the Library for the Performing Arts up at Lincoln Center if you get special permission. Um, uh, and often they are or bits of them are recorded, right? There's bits of a bunch of those shows that you can publicly access because they were either on the Tonys or they were taped for PBS. So like Hal Prince's production of Evita, you can see certain numbers from Evita. Um, that way you can see some of a little night music that way you know there's things of those things that they had to televise parts or all of them for public broadcast but there but that is not the same as sitting in the theater and being kind of overwhelmed by the experience of seeing a truly great musical i think well isaac as always whenever we have an excuse to talk theater with you it's a delight for all of us and i'm sure our listeners thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about hal prince thank you so much for having me all right, well, now is the moment on our podcast when we endorse Dan. Na, 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 Watching you do the na-na-na's in person is even more <laughs> fascinating slash <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> because I can watch for the final na to emerge from your mouth. Are you done? <laughs> nah. <laughs> Nah, I'm not done. Um, All right. I have a quick little short endorsement this week. It's a two minute long song, a cover of Cruella de Vil, the song from the 101 Dalmatians by The Replacements. Are you familiar, Steve? Oh my God, yes. You lost me, but then you got me back. (laughs) Children, you better beware. The world was such a wholesome place until Cruella, Cruella de Vil. First, you think she's a devil. She's a devil. This came up on Twitter, of all places, which we're about to, I guess, hear you trash in the in the plus segment um, last night because Josh Spiegel, who is a film critic and also the host of a podcast called Masterpiece Cinema that's all about Disney movies, put out a very fun prompt on Twitter and just said, what's your favorite song from a Disney movie? And got a couple hundred great responses. A lot of them, I thought, from more recent movies that people remembered from their own childhoods. Um, and I went back in the day to a Disney classic, 101 Dalmatians, to the great song Cruella de Vil, which I love in part because you hear its composition. Composition is composition is a part of the story of the movie, right? It's an impromptu song that uh, Mr. Dearly, is that his name? The Dalmatian guy? Make, in the book it is, anyway. Um, makes up as Cruella de Vil is, is walking into the house. I love that song. My daughter loves that song. And I happened to mention it in this thread. And then somebody reminded me that The Replacements, a great 80s band that you, Steve, I know are a super fan of, Worship, yeah. had, um, had covered that song on this 1988 album, which I remember I had back in the day called Stay Awake, that was a kind of compilation of different artists covering Disney songs. And there's many other great covers on there, one by Tom Waits, one by Ema Sumac, just by, you know, just great figures from 20th century music. Um, but my particular endorsement, and maybe it'll get you into the whole album as well, is the replacements sort of punk style cover of Cruella de Vil. And it occurs to me for the first time that the universe harmonically converges Paul Westerberg and Dodie Smith in one cultural entity. <laughs> Two of your titan <laughs> artists, Gods, right? Yes, absolutely. All right, Alex Barish, you are behind the mic. Uh, what do you got? Okay, I... I'm going to pull a Steve, both in that my first endorsement is very hard to access <laughs> and that I have two endorsements. Uh, we'll allow it. Thank you. Uh, but my first one is Andrew Scott's Hamlet, which started at the Almeida in 2017 and moved to the West End 
in 2018. It was on BBC iPlayer. There was like a National Theatre Live type screening of it. So I imagine there is a digital copy floating around somewhere on the internet. I would encourage you to seek it out if you can. Uh, Hamlet is one of my favourite plays, as cliche as that is. I've seen it like 20 times. I've seen some very bad productions, but this one made me cry profusely in a very embarrassing way. Uh, Andrew Scott is incredible in it, but it also just has some really smart directorial and dramaturgical decisions and textual choices. Rob Icke, the director, uses scenes from the quote-unquote bad quarter that are almost never staged. And I think it clarifies certain characters' sort of arcs and motivations and relationships in a really powerful way that you don't get to see very often. Um, So as I said, maybe slightly hard to get hold of now, but I have reason to believe that if the hot priest summer continues apace, it will be more accessible to American audiences. Alex Barish wants you to break the law. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The hot priest play Hamlet. Uh, I feel it's a worthy cause. Um, And my second endorsement is In the Flesh, which is a BBC drama. It was cancelled. It's only nine episodes long. It's sort of post-apocalyptic, but like a domestic drama. It's as it's like a zombie apocalypse has happened, but they found a cure for the condition. So the people who were previously zombies have come back as partially deceased syndrome sufferers is the official terminology. And they have to be reintegrated into society. And they are faced with a lot of hostility from some corners, but... Uh, You know, maybe it's partly because I watched it as a teen and just sort of imprinted on it. But I think that it has really smart things to say about xenophobia and homophobia and mental illness. And it's this really fascinating sort of gaming out of what would happen socially and in terms of religion. And, you know, there's a character who committed suicide and then comes back as a zombie and sort of has to reckon with the fallout with his family in a way that he never expected because, you know, he's back and he's alive and has to have those really difficult conversations with them. So... It is a really fascinating and moving exploration of, you know, familial relationships and uh, romantic relationships and just sort of what life would be like in the wake of this kind of disaster. Uh, And I would highly encourage you to seek that out as well. And that is on Amazon, so much easier to find. Those are good. Those are really good endorsements. (laughs) Once again, our... Uh, intern slash production assistant are smarter than we are. I mean, <laughs> the that's, pattern that's pers- been the, running through. <laughs> the pattern persists. Uh, uh, Julia, what do Didn't you have? Didn't one of them just like get a tenure track job? As <laughs> a neuroscientist? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, hi, Sam. Um, so last week I endorsed the gooseneck barnacle, and I also failed to note that it is a delicious delicacy. I actually went home that night and had dinner with a friend and told him about our crazy barnacles. And he's like, I just ate those in uh, France. He said they were delicious. Um, I'm following that trend by once again endorsing essentially nature. But this time I am endorsing the annual Audubon Photography Awards. Every year Audubon gives awards for photographs of birds. They have professional and amateur and youth categories. They have special subcategories for unusual photographic angles, for uh, photographing birds interacting with native plant species. It's a great photo contest. And every year these photographs get shared around the web. And every year they are incredibly arresting. In this year's crop, the 2019 crop, I would point you to two particularly striking ones. One is a photo of a red-winged blackbird photographed on a cool morning in a Virginia marsh in such a fashion that the sound of its little warble, which if you know red-winged blackbirds, they have a very specific trill that is one of the sounds of summer, 
is captured as breath in the cold air. So you can actually see birdsong like puffed out like a smoke ring in front of like a rising sun. What the hell? That's insane. You can see birdsong in these photos. And then another at first glance appears to be a photo of a bald eagle with an entire fox in its talons uh, being raised into the sky. And only on closer inspection do you realize that the fox and the eagle are both fighting over a rabbit and that all three of them are lofted into the sky. And apparently, um, well, I won't say. I'll leave it to you to go and find the photos <laughs> to understand exactly how many of those creatures were uh, consumed by the eagle. Was it one or two? You can find out if you go check out the 2019 Audubon Photography Awards winners, a link to which we will put on our website. Oh, I'm running there. That's reminding me That's also amazing. that Audubon is one of the best Instagram follows there is. They're just incredible. I'm sure that they'll put some of these photos on their Instagram feed as well. But there's nothing like as you're scrolling through all your friends, you know, new shoes and pets and dogs to suddenly see something like that. Some sort of in-flight battle between two different birds over a fox. Oh, my God. She's showing us the picture right now. Oh, my wow. God. Fantastic nature photography. Ben is craning his neck from the booth to see it. <laughs> That's how much you want to see these photos. Team Fox. Incredible. Uh, all right. So I'm going to just uh, call back to something I said briefly. I really want to highlight it. Isaac Butler's piece called uh, One Night Wonder in Topic Magazine about a show that opens and closes almost inst- instant- instantly um, is terrific. It's just a terrific piece of journalism and writing and criticism. And it just reminds us, you know, we're surrounded by failures um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> counterfactual ghosts. And uh, there's a wonderful tradition that I had heard about. And I, I was so thrilled to see it described in detail here about taking your poster, your uh, show's poster over to the Joe Allen uh, Bistro on the west side after you've bombed and they take it and uh, and they put it frame it and put it up and so you can you can eat at the Joe Allen restaurant surrounded by these these counterfactual ghosts anyway that's a great piece of writing also quickly i want to say and somewhat predictably the bernard crick biography of orwell has been reissued it was the first uh, or biography of Orwell published in in the nineteen or early nineteen seventies, authorized by his widow, which turned out to be something of a mixed uh, blessing. She was, I think, caught kind of horrified by part of what Crick put in it. I, I think m- many of us sort of know the general outlines of Orwell's life story, but I th- w- reading it in detail, it was really truly one of the remarkable lives of the twentieth century, and a person who came by his opinions and his hatreds and his loves. Uh, via as much physical courage and intellectual honesty as, as any writer, I think, and a person who was attempting, my interpretation of it is, he was attempting to understand in its totality the na- nature of privilege and his privilege and who had to suffer in order for him to have that privilege. And he tried to understand that in as firsthand and, and honest a way as possible. And so, you know, uh, he was for five years a military policeman. Understood how empire was sustained by and violent uh, by violence, implicit and quite graphic. He he worked as a plongeur in in Paris. Tried to understand how the working classes unremitting toil sustains the comfort of the bourgeoisie. He goes down into the coal mines at Wigan Wigan Pier in order to understand how fossil energy is extracted from the earth. You know uh, at enormous and constant risk to life and limb. And of course, his greatest claim to, I think, moral fame is when fascism broke out early on, he went to go fight it uh, and went to go try to destroy Franco. 
and and strangle fascism in its crib. Famously, he shot and um, comes within one mil- millimeter of bleeding out and dying. It's just it is an astonishing life by a human being who also, as was as he was doing that, figured out how to make English prose as lucid. Uh, as it could possibly be. So he not only had those experiences, he developed the English language as an instrument for truth-telling, I think, almost beyond any other nonfiction writer who lived, and then produces two of the most you know, compelling political parables ever, ever written, and then dies. I mean, he writes 1984 on page 360 of this 400-page biography. I mean, he all but writes it on his deathbed. Um, anyway, it's an astonishing story. I mean, it is as astonishing as the stories he told about himself and about the world were. The one that comprehends him, this this Crick biography, and, and it may not be the best of biographies, but it was the first, and I do think it, it is a beautifully uh, rendered document of his life. So I, I I really think it deserves to be deserves to be read. Anyway, Dana, thank you, Stephen, Julia. As always, a pleasure to have your knitted brows. You have made me so self-conscious because every time I'm trying to listen to you, then you're giving me these like nervous looks. I just crinkle my brows at everyone all the time. It is my listening face. Here, in honor of Alex, I'll use a Britishism. You unhorse me, madam. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, it was just a, what can I say? It was an absolute delight having you be part of the show for however long it's been. You really were just a superlative colleague. Thank yes, you so we, much. we apologize in advance for the precipitous drop in quality that our show is about to undergo <laughs> without Alex bolstering us with his wit and wisdom. I will continue listening loyally. So, <laughs> Superb. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do love getting your emails. And uh, of course, you can tweet at us. That's our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant, one last time, is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. Twitter, Twitter is for two kinds of people. It's for a person who's totally transcended their eighth grade self or a person who has completely mastered their eighth grade self. Um, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just the person who has not transcended this. You're eighth still grade in eighth grade. I'm still bad at being in eighth grade.